is fitting to offer a lecture on hospitality after I've been so warmly received today. As you may have guessed, I wrote that line in advance, but um, I am happy to say that it has lived up to the billing, so um, I didn't have to retract that as it went on. Um, I thank the, the Reverend Dr. Mindy Cromwell for asking me to deliver the Cheney Bible Lecture, and for all of those with her who have helped put it together, I know Larry Anderson and Diane Craig, I'm sure, did much as well. Um, and all of those helping behind the scenes, uh, too. Um, I think everyone who had a part in making this day a success. Um, for all the events today, I'm aware that um, yeah, much work, again, was put in by technicians and faculty administrators. And so I thank you to all of you. I also appreciate everyone who is here in attendance. Um, and especially the students who are here attending. I'm sure you have homework or activities that you could be doing or sleep you could be catching up on, and yet you came to this evening lecture. As a college professor, I realize that many of you are here for extra credit, but the thanks still goes to you even if you're also getting extra credit. And of course, I would like to thank Dr. Richard Spann, um, who with his wife Beverly has endowed this um, lectureship series. So thank you again to, to everyone here. A meeting to, like tonight does not occur without many hands, and it is a beautiful expression of hospitality. Now, despite the instances of hospitality that I can happily celebrate here tonight, I fear that contemporary America as a whole suffers from a lack of hospitality in its truest, deepest sense. I'm not so much concerned at present with the number of meals shared between friends or multi-day visits paid to relatives. Those two might be declining as the U.S. faces an epidemic of loneliness. But even more than that, hospitality is about hosting those unlike yourself. The virtue of hospitality venerated in the New Testament, philoxenia, etymologically means love of foreigner. When I serve a meal to my three-year-old son, I am not practicing hospitality. I am just discharging my basic duties as a father. To be hospitable requires reaching across some line of us versus them. It would be unnecessary to catalog the deep divisions in America, the many us versus them situations that face us today. I am sure we are all well aware of the problem. It seems to me that hospitality is an essential element in bridging these many divides. In that spirit, let me offer three biblical portraits of hospitality. The first societal, the second familial, and the third religious. First portrait, the Torah on the foreigner. The Torah, that is the law or the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, has much to say about hospitality that must be shown to refugees and immigrants. Now, the law may seem an inauspicious place to begin an evening lecture. You may, may have recently had a meal. It is now dark outside. Perhaps your chair is surprisingly comfortable for an auditorium, and the lecturer is pivoting to a discussion of ancient Israelite legislation. For those of you who have harbored an ambition to read straight through the Bible, you may know firsthand that Leviticus is the place that that good intention goes to die. Genesis makes for a brisk and entertaining read. The first half of Exodus has a dramatic story of rescue from slavery. But Leviticus? Leviticus is the blood of and entrails of sacrificed animals. It is the robes, gems, and oils used to commission the high priest, the regulations for determining which meats are acceptable to eat, and a long list of unlawful sexual relations. It devotes 116 verses to skin diseases, their diagnosis, management, and purification. Bonus, um, as a college professor, I actually assign that to my students at Sterling, because uh, I really like to like, talk about like why is this in there. Um, but anyway, you don't have me for Old Testament, so you probably don't read those chapters. If you do soldier through Leviticus, you will find that Numbers has a few entertaining episodes in it, but otherwise Numbers and Deuteronomy are much the same. So again, this might seem like the perfect recipe for a nap. I say this half-jokingly. To be sure, the, word, the world of Torah is indeed much different than our own. It will sometimes strike us as odd, and it is easy to poke fun at how much has changed from then to now. Yet, I am a believing, practicing Christian, and I affirm that all scripture is God-breathed, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. The laws of the Old Testament remain authoritative for Christians, however, indirectly. We may not need to follow all of them literally, 
but we can draw wisdom from any of them once we understand what their function was in the original setting. Indeed, Moses testifies about the law code thus. See, I have taught you the decrees and laws that as the Lord my God has commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entertaining to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, who will hear about these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to, as to have such righteous decrees? <clears throat> I'm not just getting choked up. This is not an emotional reading moment. I just, for some reason, got something in my throat. And laws, as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today. Israel thought that its law was the envy of other nations and a monument to the sagacity of its God. And indeed, there are many beautiful aspects of the Torah. I love the concept of the Jubilee year. When I imagine what it would have been like to attend the yearly festivals, <clears throat> I can sense distantly how profound their significance was. The rules for everyday life would make an inviting society, those such as Leviticus 19.32, stand up in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly. You stole my joke, a verse that becomes more meaningful to me by the year. But if I were to choose a favorite theme from the Torah, it would probably be the compassion and justice offered to the four protected classes of individuals, the fatherless and widow, the poor and foreigner. The term protected classes does not come from the Bible itself, and there is no direct listing of these four in the Torah. Indeed, all four words do never occur together in a single verse in the law. The only place that they do constellate in one verse is outside the law in the prophet Zechariah. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. But within the Torah, these four groups arise again and again, often in the same paragraph or two, as in Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of the hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset, because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why, that is why I command you to do this. According to the law, then, these four groups are worthy, no, demand special protection, precisely because each of them has an acute vulnerability in ancient society. The fatherless lacked well, a father, and widows lacked a husband. Both were in an unenviable situation in a patriarchal world. The poor lacked money and the influence, respect, and power that are so often attached to it, which poses dangers in every culture I have ever studied. And foreigners are away from their kin, their support network. Normally, they live off someone else's land without a home of their own, and they often act, speak, and live in ways that the dominant uh, culture mistrusts. It is laws concerning this final class that I want to focus on. The Hebrew word for foreigner, ger, indicates a non-Israelite dwelling among the Israelites whose stay in the land might last years or even a lifetime. Foreigners lived on the borders of Israelite society. At times they are portrayed as a distinct group outside the nation of Israel. At other times they are included as part of all Israel alongside the native born. The liminal status opened, to, opened foreigners to various risks but the Torah prescribed four items to protect and welcome them. First, foreigners were invited, but not normally required, to participate in Israel's religious rites and festivals. The law grants them the right to sacrifice at the sanctuary, and they receive forgiveness alongside Israelites for corporate sins. They can keep the major festivals like Pesach, or Passover, Shavuot, weeks, or Pentecost, and Sukkot, tabernacles, or booths. Foreigners are called upon to rest on the Sabbath day, as all humans and animals are to do, as well as on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Yet this demand in the Torah is not unbending legalism, but a habit conducive to health. Exodus 23.12 explains, Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Second, the foreigner is under common law and common expectations with the native born. Thus, Leviticus 24, 22, you have the same law for the foreigner and the native born, uh, native born, I am the Lord your God. 
This is applied to receiving an unbiased decision in the law courts, among other matters. But with those equal rights come equal responsibilities. Speaking of the sacrifice required of those who accidentally violate a decree, Numbers 15:29 commands, one and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether a native-born Israelite or a foreigner residing among you. And a similar logic is at work in a variety of case laws. The legal system could not be rigged against immigrants to Israel. Third, foreigners were afforded special privileges so as to counteract the inbuilt advantages the native-born native Israelites had, such as land allotments and family networks. In particular, they received two benefits that ensured that they had adequate subsistence. First, the ancient Israelites were prohibited from harvesting their fields thoroughly. They were not to reject any field, tree, or vine looking for missed produce, nor were they allowed to touch the corners of their own fields. Food needed to be left over so that foreigners and other protected classes could enter anyone's field and pick grain and fruit to, con to feed themselves and their families. Second, every three years, Israelites gave the, a tenth of their crops to a fund set up to support the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. The benevolence offered to foreigners might be captured best by Leviticus 2535. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would help a foreigner and stranger. We, of course, expect the reverse. If a foreigner falls upon hard times, help him as you would help a relative. But no, this is the opposite direction. Help a relative as you would a foreigner. Only if the unwavering support for foreigners was so ingrained, so unquestioned, would you use it to encourage someone to help a relative in the same way. The fourth item is the most frequently mentioned. It is also straightforward. Do not harass, do not exploit foreigners, but welcome them. We can read a variant of this command again and again. Exodus 29, 3, uh, 23, 9. Do not oppress a foreigner, for you yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a foreigner residing among you in, resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 23, 7. Do not despise an Edomite for the Edomites are related to you. Do not despise an Egyptian, because you resided as foreigners in their country. Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice, or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I commanded you to do this. The obvious continuity among these verses is that they prohibit exploiting foreigners. The other protected classes are also mentioned here and there. We hear, I am the Lord, a reminder of the status of Israel's God and his authority to sovereign as a sovereign over the people. But unless I have lulled you to sleep as I threatened to do in the, at the outset of this section, the common refrain you likely noticed is, you were foreigners in Egypt. It was incumbent upon Israel to receive foreigners well, precisely because they had been foreigners in the past. But this is odd. The Israelite stay in Egypt was hardly a friendly one. They were enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Why should that dark period provide the rationale for these laws? Perhaps we are supposed to remember a bit earlier in Israel's history, not to the first pages of Exodus when Moses frees the Israelites from slavery, but to the last pages of Genesis when Joseph settles his family in Egypt to survive a years-long famine. That is possible, and some of the verses might have that in mind. But I would draw attention instead to two passages in particular. Exodus 23, 9 and Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18. Exodus 23, 9 adds an extra phrase that the others do not have. Do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners because you are foreigners in Egypt. This middle section is literally, you, you know the life or soul of the foreigner, nefesh hager. The nation has known firsthand the brutality of life as a foreigner in an unjust society, and they are called upon to provide a different model. In the same vein, Deuteronomy 24, 17 and 18 does not speak of Israel being a foreigner in Egypt or sojourning there. Rather, quote, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. The experience of slavery is made explicit. 
Thus, when we consider the repeated line, you were foreigners in Egypt, I do not read it as warm recollections of honorable treatment that Israel should emulate. No, it is a painful reminder of what can go wrong and a stern call to act otherwise. Israel, more than almost any people group, knew and has known life as a foreign people in sometimes welcoming, sometimes hostile societies. The Torah invites foreigners to celebrate the Israelite festivals. It grants them access to the same laws that the native-born have, as well as special privileges meant to compensate for the inevitable difficulties they will face. And the native Israelites are not to exploit them in any way. These are not simply gestures of kindness recommended to Israel when they have the time, money, or opportunity. They are divine commands, hospitality as social justice, instituted in part because of painful memories of cruel treatment at the hands of the Egyptians. Second portrait, the nativity. Now, it may seem mean-spirited to bring up Christmas on the first day of February. The fun and festivities have passed, school is back in session, and we are in that dreary part of wintertime without a holiday upcoming. Actually, to come clean, I say this to commiserate with many of you, but it is not my perspective. I do enjoy Christmas, and I'm sad that the next Christmas is almost 11 months away. But I love winter in general. I love the cold and snow. Perhaps not coincidentally, I was born in Colorado, and before Kansas, I lived in Wisconsin. Those are real winter states, especially Wisconsin. Upper Midwesterners are a hardy people. In Kansas, winter visits occasionally, but mostly we have a strangely elongated autumn, and then spring arrives. Some of you disagree. I can laugh at you currently. When summer comes, then all the native Kansans, as well as Oklahomans and Texans and so forth, can laugh at me as I melt in 100 degree heats. But I digress. I want to offer the biblical nativity scene as one of family hospitality. Now, all of us are aware that many of our Christmas traditions have nothing to do with the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. As practiced today, Christmas is a peculiar mashup of a generic winter festival and a Christian remembrance of the incarnation. I have a toddler son, and during December story time, he may well select a contemporary retelling of the biblical nativity for me to read, and then next hand me the Dr. Seuss classic, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. The winter festival version of Christmas, in its shallower senses, is about presents, candy, outdoor games, and fleeting romances. It is epitomized well by that worst of all holiday songs, Santa Baby. <laughs> Some of you agree. <laughs> that manages to mix a bizarre flirtation with Santa Claus and unchecked consumerism. Is that the song Santa Baby? Anyway. In its better senses, this winter, winter festival version is about rest and refreshment, family and friends. Whatever the exact form of winter festival Christmas, most of us probably realize that it has little directly to do with the story of Jesus' birth. What we may not realize, however, is that many of our most firmly embedded understandings of the Christian Christmas are also not historical. You may be familiar with the basic narrative. Mary and Joseph head from Nazareth to Bethlehem to be registered for an empire-wide tax. When they draw near, Mary realizes that her time is short, and Joseph goes to the inn, there are maybe several of them, and the innkeeper tells him that there is no room. Perhaps the innkeeper is sympathetic but has no vacancies, or maybe, hearing a rumor of Mary's pre-marriage pregnancy, the innkeeper does not want the, to house the scandalous couple. This being a very moralistic, judgmental time, we suppose. Desperate, Joseph finds a nearby stable, or perhaps some kind of person refers him to it, where Mary gives birth. Notwithstanding the most stressful and hectic birthing process that could be imagined, in our minds we peek in on this happy family as Jesus sleeps in an inexplicably clean manger. Mary, looking unfazed by giving birth, rests at his sides and gazes adoringly at him. Joseph, smiling and standing a little further back with staff in hand, looks contentedly upon his fiance and son, or technically stepson. Everyone is faintly glowing, not a lot, but, a, but noticeable, like a Thomas Kincaid painting. So two people have seen Thomas Kincaid paintings. <laughs> if you ever see one, they all glow. Anyway, and at this point, it is just the three of them, aside from an assortment of animals that are surprisingly attentive and calm, apparently quickly reassured after a woman unknown to them has just entered their stable and gave birth in their midst. Now, I sketched the scene to already hint at some of the absurdities 
some elements we can deconstruct ourselves with even minimal reflection. The space would have had to have been far more chaotic, much dirtier. The animals are unlikely to have behaved as if they were adoring aunts and uncles. And what is Joseph doing with a shepherd's staff? He is a carpenter, or handyman may better capture the occupation tectone. Um, but in any case, he's not a shepherd, no staff. All of this has no basis in the Bible. Other parts of the received story are logical enough inferences from Luke 2, but are not directly stated by the text. And some elements are because of what is likely a mistranslation. Here's the narrative, all seven verses of it, from the familiar King James Version. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that the, all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. And Joseph went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the kataluma. The travel, the census, and the manger are all there. The stable and its, all its animals, however, are not mentioned. We have deduced their presence from the bare notice that Mary laid him in a manger. And no doubt you noticed that strange-sounding final word, precisely because it is not a word in English. Kataluma is the Greek word that Luke wrote. We all know its translation, the inn. Except, except we are wrong. That is not the pattern of travel in the first century Roman world. If a family entered a new town and was shut out of all residences, it would be a stunning failure of hospitality in Mediterranean culture. Hospitality is regularly woven into virtue lists in the New Testament. For example, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is well known for good deeds, such as showing hospitality. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitalities to angels without knowing it. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. There are many ways that Christianity broke from the common values of the day. This is not one of them. These verses are illustrative of the times. Travel nearly always occurred by social networks, with a visitor staying with a relative, friend, or friend of a friend. Presumably, Joseph had these aplenty, since there was the whole reason for the travel is that all people were to return to their own town to register for the census. In any case, in the last resort, a visitor turned to a complete stranger, not inns, which were notorious for harboring criminals and prostitutes. Recall the letter to the Hebrews again. Show hospitality to strangers. We catch a glimpse of typical travel arrangements near the end of Paul's short letter to Philemon. Almost as an afterthought, Paul requests, and one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Paul can solicit this favor so casually because he can expect its fulfillment so automatically. Jesus tells a parable that also illustrates the expectation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get, you, get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though you will, he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. In context, the parable is making another point, namely that we should be bold in our prayers to God. But it vividly displays the deep-rooted drive to host well. When the one friend arrives at midnight, was he expected or not? It is judged less shameful to awaken another friend and his family in order to secure se several loaves of bread than it is to offer the first friend a bed without a meal. It is simply out of the question to withhold food and lodging from someone requesting it. Indeed, in the chapter before Jesus' birth in Luke's gospel, Mary stayed with her relatives Elizabeth and Zachariah for three months. Thus, the idea that Mary and Joseph would have sought out an inn is far-fetched, that they would have been turned away all the more so. But Kataluma 
means lodging place, and it need not indicate an inn, that is, a place where visitors pay to stay. To state it directly, there is no inn in Luke's nativity, even less so an innkeeper, angry, apologetic, or otherwise. Luke knows the word inn and innkeeper and uses them elsewhere in his gospel. The inn with its wicked innkeeper entered the Christian imagination in the Middle Ages. The King James Version made a logical guess at the meaning of kataluma for 1600s England. The translation in thereby circulated widely and, in time, became venerable, so much so that many tr modern translations retain it. But surveying the use of the word outside this one passage, there are two possible meanings, and neither of them is in. Kataluma sometimes indicated a bear shelter set up in the town square or along the road, available to all passers-by, a roof over your head and not much else. In this scenario, Mary and Joseph set up in the public hostel of Bethlehem with many other travelers present. Wanting privacy, they retire to a secluded location where Mary's labor begins, when Mary's labor begins. This fits a known meaning of kataluma, and on that level remains more plausible than in. But it would still represent a remarkable lack of hospitality. Much more likely, in my estimation, is the second known meaning of kataluma, a guest room a phrase several recent Bible translations have adopted. This was probably not a spare bedroom, as I have in my house in Sterling. It might be that, but more likely it was a common space akin to a living room where a friend crashes, when your friend crashes on your couch. The word kataluma occurs in one other episode in the New Testament, at the Last Supper, um, at the Last Supper shortly before Jesus' crucifixion. Both Mark and Luke include the word. I will quote Luke's version since we are already in his gospel. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the kataluma, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. Peter and John are not sent calling after an inn. Rather, this kataluma is described in the next sentence as a large room upstairs, all furnished. The size, location, and furnishings might differ from house, from one uh, kataluma to another, but, this is this, uh, but in this second documented meaning of the word, it is always a room within a private dwelling. The second scenario recasts our understanding of Mary and Joseph's arrival and acceptance in Bethlehem. Let us return to the key verses, but now in the New International Version. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and Mary gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. The first detail to notice is that the couple had arrived and been housed in Bethlehem for some time before the birth. While they were there, the time came. This phrase betrays no ongoing concern for shelter, it seems as if they had already secured sufficient accommodations, presumably with Joseph's extended family. The unavailable guest room still seems enigmatic, though, and in one sense it is. Luke mentions the point but adds no further comment. That said, an explanation lies near at hand. Luke, uh, the guest room was unavailable because it was occupied by another visitor, probably another relative of Joseph who was compelled to Bethlehem for the same reason Mary and Joseph were. The door has not been too tightly shut, but thrown too wide open. Still, the house and the pregnant woman, still, how's the pregnant woman with the animals? The situation is not as bad as it sounds. Animals were often kept in the interior of the home, in the back or to the side of the living quarters. Or the living space was on the second floor and the animals were given the first. Sometimes they were kept in a, a separate construction, a staple, a stable, or a well-protected cave, but in both cases, something that was close to the main house. Whatever the case may have been for, at this domicile, Mary and Joseph would have been integrated into the care, protection, and life of the home. Perhaps they shared this space with the animals because it afforded the most privacy. Later, Christian tradition expanded upon the material from Luke and Matthew significantly. Theological and apologetic aims color the narratives, so I place little stock in the exact details. But at minimum, they communicate what Christians much closer to the time of Jesus thought was culturally appropriate. 
And often the images of the nativity are populated with many other figures around Mary and Joseph. Here, for example, is the second century infancy gospel of James. And Joseph found a cave there and led Mary into it. And leaving his two sons beside her, he went out to seek a midwife in that district of Bethlehem. And the midwife went away with Joseph. And they stood in the place of the cave. And the midwives went forth out of the cave and Salome met her. And she said to her, Salome, Salome, I have had a strange sight to relate to thee. A virgin has brought forth. And the Magi saw the infant with his mother Mary, and they brought forth from their bag gold and frankincense and myrrh. Against the Gospel of Luke, this infancy gospel, in this infancy gospel, Mary and Joseph are still traveling when she goes into labor. Even so, Joseph, Jesus' two brothers, a midwife, Salome, and the Magi are all either witness to the birth or arrive very soon thereafter. Now, a little side note to my Protestants in the room, of which I am one. Um, Jesus' siblings are present uh, because there was already a tradition of Mar Mary's perpetual virginity by the second century. Since the Gospels mention Jesus having brothers and sisters, um, Joseph is understood as being a widower with children from a prior marriage. Protestants usually just assume Jesus is the oldest brother, and Mary and Joseph had other children later on. But that's why there's brothers already present. Another image comes from the fourth century poet theologian Ephraim the Syrian. At the birth of the son, there came a great clamor in Bethlehem, for angels descended and gave praise there. The shepherds also came, laden with the best gifts of their flock. At that voice of praise, brides were moved to hallow themselves and virgins to be chaste. Even young girls were purified. They rose early and coming in multitudes, they worshiped the son. Aged women to, uh, of the city of David came to the daughter of David. The old men cried out, blessed be the babe. The chaste women said, oh, blessed fruit, bless the fruit of our wombs. The barren women also hovered over him and held him, they rejoiced. Now we have angels, shepherds, brides, virgins, young girls, aged women, old women, chaste women, barren women, all acclaiming his birth. Bethlehem is in a great clamor and Ephraim describes the people coming in multitudes. The birth of Jesus was no lonely affair. The nativity in Luke 2 is laconic, and my, many, uh, many of the items are unelaborated. I hate, I hate to conjecture too much, but the scenario I have outlined is much more plausible. If I have at least the gist of it right, then the birth of Jesus is not a story of inhospitality. It is not cold-hearted relatives or a cruel innkeeper shutting out a pregnant woman as she goes into labor. Instead, it suggests a fullness of welcome, an overflowing welcome, so much so that family members spilled out of the main dwellings into every inhabitable space on the property. Even before the shepherds arrived, the baby Jesus likely had a host of visitors. And I don't mean the cows and sheep. The vision of this original Christmas speaks even more to my experience of Christmas. December 25th is not a quiet time to withdraw into the nuclear family, but a boisterous explosion of action with the extended family. Third portrait, welcome in Paul's letters. Even before entering my profession of teaching the Bible at a college, here and there I had heard about biblical illiteracy in America, a widespread lack of understanding about the Bible, its stories, themes, and ideas. It did not take me long as a professor to observe this firsthand. I regularly met students who could not say if Moses or Jesus was first. When I asked students in New Testament intro what names they know from the New Testament, the list often is Jesus and Mary first, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As the latter quartet of names coincides imperfectly with the most influential people in the New Testament, but perfectly with the first four books of the New Testament, I'm led to the sad conclusion that my students are more familiar with the surface of the New Testament than its substance but at least they know the names of the New Testament books. When I give an anonymous quiz at the start of Old Testament intro, the class as a whole always fails even basic questions like identifying Old Testament books, sections, and characters. Normally, it is not even a high F. Last semester, on one question, the percentage was in the single digits. The state of American biblical understanding is captured well by a student who once gasped loudly in my class when he realized that David and Goliath he had heard so much about in sports came from the Bible. I say none of this to shame anyone here if you are in a position such as my students. I only mention this to acknowledge outright that some of you will have no formed opinion of the New Testament figure we will consider in this final section. Others, however, do have an impression of the Apostle Paul. If you, if you were like I was growing up, 
then you may picture Paul as brusque, even if you find his writing stimulating. He seems like a gruff genius, too lost or detached in his thought, too dedicated to his mission to devote much time to the niceties of social etiquette or relationship building. Sarah Rudin describes a common view of the apostle, especially among those not inclined to see the Bible as an infallible text. Paul is an authoritarian man, man among the louder and more sexist Bible authors, even a grumpy pants, whose faults are obvious enough, his bad temper, his self-righteousness, his anxiety. At best, she says generously of this perception of Paul, he was not easy to get along with. His letters can yield this impression too. Reading his correspondences, it seems as if uh, there's controversy in every church he writes to, and he inspires enemies at every turn. Paul often badgers and conjoles. At times, he shames and threatens. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he pulls out every fundraising trick in the book, including guilt-tripping and playing one congregation off another to collect money for the poor in Jerusalem. He's also surprisingly salty for someone canonized in Scripture. Against his rivals who say that circumcision is required of Gentile, that is, non-Jewish, Christians, in his letter to the Galatians, he quips that he wishes the knife would just slip. And he likes the joke enough to make it again in slightly different form when he writes to the city of Philippi. Christian theology cannot be understood apart from the Apostle Paul, and many of his passages are moving emotionally and intellectually. But of all the characters in the Bible, he probably ranks near the bottom of someone you would just like to hang out with. Peter seems kind of fun, talkative, bold, charismatic. Paul, in many imaginations, seems too prickly. For this reason, taking advice from Paul on hospitality might appear to be foolish. But I think he operates according to several important principles that are easy to miss. Even a quick comparison of two of his letters, to the Galatians and to the Romans, uncovers a good deal of wisdom for how religious traditions can be hospitable. Galatians, our first letter, was written in a white-hot rage. Rather than including his standard word of prayer or thanks, Paul opens the letter thus. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. After the stinging accusation that greets the Galatians, Paul begins to explain what has gone wrong. The Gentile Galatians are coming under the orbit of teachers he calls the agitators, which the NIV has translated with the phrase we just read, those who are throwing you into, confu in, into confusion. These agitators are requiring Jewish ways of life of Gentile converts, and Paul, despite his own Jew Jewish ethnicity, sees this as a betrayal of an agreement already established with the other apostles. First, he recalls the initial discussions on the matter in Jerusalem. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Then he remember, remembers an episode some years later in the church at Antioch. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? In both of these cases, Gentile Christians are entitled, even expected to live as Gentiles, not as Jews. Circumcision and kosher eating are not required. To emphasize his point, Paul eventually develops the starkest of con contrasts, Christ or circumcision. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man that who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. And he explains the opposition he receives in this way. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. If we only had Galatians alone, we would, would sense that Paul was alienated from his Jewishness and that he gave the upper hand to Gentile Christians over Jewish Christians. But Galatians is not our only letter from Paul. And the apostle takes a noticeably, noticeably different track in Romans. In much calmer terms, he counsels. Welcome those who are weak in faith, but not, uh, not for the purposes of quarreling over opinions. 
Some believe in eating anything, while the weak eat only vegetables. Those who eat must not despise those who abstain, and those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on, slave, on the slaves of another? It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall, and they will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Although Paul does not come out and say it, the animating concern here is presumably kosher food laws. But notice the side Paul takes. It is the weak, those who keep kosher, um, whose side he takes, and he worries lest the strong judge them. What is implicit here is made explicit a few chapters earlier. In Romans 11, he says specifically, I am talking to you Gentiles. Do not consider yourselves to be superior to those other branches, non-Christian Jews. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. While Galatians and Romans are very similar letters in many regards, they are not alike in their practical aims. Galatians protects Gentiles against those who would make them into Jews, while Romans warns Gentile Christians not to judge Jewish Christians. This is not inconsistency on Paul's part, but rather flexibility to apply the right message to the right audience at the right time. For these and other letters, Paul's governing principles are evident. First, unity. Paul wants believers to form one community in Christ. Second, diversity. Paul fights for the rights of Jews and Gentiles to keep their native customs and ways. And third, responsibility. The apostle consistently calls those with power to accommodate them, themselves to those with less power. And his directions on these matters are far from dour or dictatorial. To be sure, Paul is passionate, but he is passionate to speak up for the oppressed. Nor does he only concern himself with ethnicity. Elsewhere, he also applies these principles to gender and class. I hope it is clear by now that the initial sketch of Paul I offered is, in my opinion, a parody of the real Paul. Some years ago, F.F. Bruce offered a quite different image of Paul, one that merits quoting at length. Dr. Samuel Johnson described one of his acquaintances as an unclubbable man, so somebody who couldn't join a club in the older sense of like a friendship group. That is the last adjective anyone who knew Paul would use of him. He was eminently clubbable, social, gregarious. He delighted in the company of his fellows, both men and women. The most incredible feature in the Paul of popular mythology is his alleged misogyny. No, he treated women as persons. The range of his friendship and the warmth of his affections are qualities which no attentive reader of his letters can miss. Let me draw this lecture to a close with some brief reflections for our own day. My first biblical portrait was of societal hospitality. The care the Torah of Moses makes, takes to protect, sustain, and integrate foreigners into the life of Israel without merely assimilating them. Divisions over race, ethnicity, and nationality are as raw and painful as they have been in years, both domestically and abroad. Many issues spring to mind for all of us, I am sure, but I might turn our attention to what is arguably the most direct application today, the kind reception of immigrants who apply for asylum. To be sure, there should be proper protocols in place and not everyone who arrives has a deserving case. But the Bible ought to switch our presumption. The foreigners were accepted and granted rights as a matter of course, something that we would do well to emulate. And I'll do a quick pitch for a colleague of mine at Sterling College, uh, Glenn Butner, has just published a book like out this month, Jesus the Refugee um, from Fortress Press, which is a really good book on this topic. Second, my second portrait was reimagining nativity as a prime example of family hospitality rather than inhospitality. Today, various forces are at work against the family. Divorce continues to be sadly common. Jobs and entertainment can pull our attention away. Political or cultural disagreements can make the dinner table go quiet or overly loud. And all of these problems tend to be more acute when we consider our extended family rather than our immediate family. As mentioned at the outset, the very principle of hospitality, philoxenia, is loving those unlike you. It is amateur hospitality when we host those we agree with on all matters. We graduate to the big leagues once we can love those unlike us. My third portrait was religious hospitality on how the Christian church was meant to foster unity without stamping out diversity. The American church has, I fear, largely failed at this. Instead, we see uniformity within any one church and bickering between churches. It has often been said that 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour. And this is true not only concerning race, but increasingly also in terms of political affiliation, cultural views, and class. 
The problem leading to these, this situation are many, but at least one solution is religious hospitality, worshiping together with others unlike you. As a Christian, I want to add a hopeful word at the end. I have less of, left us with some moral challenges that I do not think we have faced up to as well as we should as the American church. But the biblical authors all began and ended with their focus on God. And the gospel message at the core of Christianity is a drama of hospitality. Although he was truly human, God in the person of Jesus dwelt as, in some sense, a foreigner on earth. And we did not receive him, as it says in John 1. And yet, though his death, through his death and resurrection, God invites us to dwell with him in eternity as recipients of the divine life, the ultimate act of hospitality. It is within this larger story that we offer our own hospitality. Or, in the words of the Apostle Paul, welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you. Thank you. And good... Um, there I am again. Do, do, our, uh, do our politicians advocate humane and just immigration policy that, you know, let's, um, you know, again, I, I realize that there is some place for controls and everything, but, um, but are there kind of humane ways that we can do that? And similarly with things like, you know, welfare, do we, do we support politicians who uh, will provide, you know, adequate welfare options? Because I do think the Old Testament basically has its own version of welfare to make sure that no one goes hungry. Um, but I do think at the same time, there's also definitely a role for the church. Um, and so, you know, I think when you look at like a number of the, the organizations that do a lot to help feed the poor and bring in refugees and, and all of those sorts of things in America, you know, a lot of those are Christian run organizations. Um, I myself have always liked a few Christian organizations that work kind of globally. Um, Compassion International, I think, has a really good model of like giving to um, families and you kind of stick with a, a child from when they're young to when they're, you know, graduate high school and kind of like fund that child the whole way so that they have like food and education and all those sorts of things. Um, so I think partnering with, um, there are Christian organizations that are in all of these areas and just supporting that. Um, and since I mentioned my colleague um, writing this book about the refugees and, and protecting the refugees, I'll also say in you know, I'm very impressed with him. I don't know how he has the time for this, but he spearheaded an effort with a couple of our churches in the Sterling area, Sterling and Lyons, Kansas, um, to actually bring Ukrainian refugees into the United States. And so there's actually a Ukrainian family that just arrived last week from, um, yeah, they had already fled to Germany, but they're now living in Lyons, Kansas um, because of uh, Glenn's efforts. So so things like that. I don't, you don't necessarily have to bring a, a Ukrainian refugee in. That takes a lot of work. Um, but, you know, there are things that you can do as individuals or part of groups. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I think, I mean, um, I think you have to define... Uh, there are different issues to kind of consider here. And, and sometimes it's like, which box does the, do these different things fit into? So I do think that there are some issues that for Paul and would therefore, you know, somebody who believes that the Bible does give us um, God's authoritative word. I do think there are some issues uh, that are strong enough to say like, if we don't agree on this point or if you don't live in these certain ways, um, we can't have real Christian fellowship. Um, and so for me, you know, a few of those things is like proper belief in the Trinity, um, belief of Jesus as human and divine. Um, you know, some of those are like core Christian teachings that I think this is what it means to be a Christian. And if you don't believe this, I can still be a good person to you. And, you know, we can be friends and those sorts of things. But I'm not going to treat you like as a Christian. Uh, like, I don't think we have Christian fellowship because I don't think those things meet the doctrinal requirements of what, what true Christianity is. Um, and similarly, I think there are some moral failings that are obvious enough um, and bad enough that church discipline is necessary. And I would say that those are not many that rise to that level, but I think there are some. And I think, you know, when it, we, we think about our culture, like Christians have brought upon themselves um, about, I mean, I, I think the church has done a lot of wrong things recently. I'm, I'm not super optimistic about where the American church is at currently um, for a variety of reasons. Um, so some of this is, is self, you know, we've brought upon ourselves. Um, but I do think that there's some irony to me that like the Christian church is at one time known as hypocrites and then also as judgmental. 
And in some sense, I'm like, well, like the more you move to like letting anything go, then it just appears that all Christians are hypocrites. And if you try to actually enforce standards of morality, then it seems like you're judgmental. And like to some degree, it's like, well, it's one or the other. And so I think that there are some some things that are exploitative and bad enough that breaking fellowship and treating somebody as somebody who needs to repent and come back to Christ is necessary. So, you know, I think of all, and this isn't just something that's happened in like Catholic churches, you know, there's been a lot of realization that this has happened in Baptist churches as well, but, you know, like pastors or priests who have been pedophiles or have, you know, done various things like that, like, I think that's a, you know, like, I'm breaking fellowship to you until you repent, you know, like, so anyway, I do think there are some matters that are at a high level, but I would say most matters, um, theological and moral, are usually handled better at a level of, we disagree, but this is not a break fellowship sort of thing, or you've made a mistake, but this is sort of like, you know, make a change, repent, but there's no like ostracizing for it. Yeah. <laughs> I just made it up because it kind of put my point better. So I'm just lying to you. No. Um, yeah, no, I know. I know. Um, so, you know, and, and this is not my area of specialties. Uh, I actually, yeah, I've done my study has been more of the Apostle Paul, and so, like, I actually could tell you more about how people lived in, like, a lot of the cities of the Roman Empire, but, you know, there is, like, archaeology, and so they can go back and look at, like, what Mediterranean villages looked like around that time, um, and until the Syrian Civil War, there was a, a really great city, actually, in, in Syria, um, but it, it was built around the first century, and until recently had been functioning, and one of my professors, when I was in my PhD program at Marquette, had, like, done archaeology there, but it was like, this is what a village built at that time looked like. Um, and so there's kind of evidence of like what the villages in Galilee um, or, you know, in or around, I guess in this case, Bethlehem would have looked like because, it, you know, you can dig things up and kind of look at what it looked like. And if there's like 2,000 year old animal feces there, <laughs> then you kind of know that that's where the animals were kept. Uh, so. Yeah. yeah, that's that's how we that's how we should end. <laughs>